Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the podcast, website, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just click the donate link on my website or purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently. Number two, and this is a big one for me. I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and never considered an insulin pump until meeting a few behind-the-scenes passionate Insulet leaders. And in case you didn't know, Insulet is the maker of the Omnipod tubeless insulin delivery systems. I tiptoed into using the CGM ages ago, and my diabetes management has never been better. So when I discovered Omnipod 5, I was sold. <laughs> I'm in the process of insurance approval and can't wait to share that I finally moved from MBI therapy to being a potter. This is a totally new experience for me, and as you know, and I'm not shy and will share my thoughts with the world. Why did I choose Omnipod over the other options, you ask? It was simple. It's tubeless and waterproof. It integrates the Dexcom G6 to automatically adjust insulin based on the CGM value to help keep you in range. And the automatic insulin adjustments happen every five minutes, even when you're sleeping. Thank you for that. I can't wait to try Omnipod 5. And who knows, I might change my tagline from cheers to the highs and lows to there's nothing like being in range. Stay tuned. If you'd like to try Omnipod 5 yourself, you may be eligible for a trial. For eligibility, free trial terms and conditions, and full safety information, visit Omnipod.com backslash DDG. All right, enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Kayla Chorley, is a certified Canadian counselor and therapist whose practice extends her support for individuals living with type 1 diabetes and focuses on areas of burnout, diabetes distress, and hypoanxiety. Having lived with type 1, for 23 years, she is deeply passionate about supporting mental health in our community. Welcome to the show, Kayla. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. I'm excited to be here. Well, and I'm going to say right now, because I can hear your accent a little bit, where are you calling in from? Yes, I am calling from up north. I am from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are far north. We're one of the furthest north capitals in Canada. So oh. it's very nice. And we just got snow actually the other day. So we're already in full winter mode. Well, and it's funny that you bring that. I'm in San Antonio currently in Texas and it's been pouring rain and it's rare that it rains here. So you might hear rain in the background, but we'll there just we go. go through that. Right. So I, I start with most episodes with, let's talk about your diagnosis stories. Sure. Absolutely. So I was 12 years old when I was diagnosed and I had just started junior high, so middle school. And I was really struggling with schoolwork. I couldn't see the board. I was really distracted. I was tired all the time. Classic symptoms of going to the bathroom all the time, drinking a whole bunch of fluid and liquids. And at first, my mom thought I was just trying to get out of going to school. Typical <laughs> mom, right? right? Reaction there. So she was like, oh, Kayla, you know, you're just worried. This is a new school and it's kind of scary, but you'll be okay. Right. So I kept going to school. And then one day she kind of called me out. I was like, mom, I don't feel good. Like, I, I don't think I can go to school. So she was like, fine, I'm taking you to the hospital. Oh. 
And I was like, yeah, like I actually want to go. I think something's wrong. To give you some backstory, about a week previous to that, I mm-hmm. had gone to my family physician and gotten some blood work done, but we didn't have the results yet. Okay. So I had gone to the hospital. We got to the hospital, checked my blood sugars and everything at the triage. And they're like, oh, no, you're fine. Like you're not diabetic. All good. And then they sent me to the stallery. So the children's unit of the hospital. And as I was walking down the hallway to this, this unit, I just lost my vision completely. Oh, couldn't wow. see anything. So I said to my mom, I was like, mom, I can't see anything. And my mom thought, I, again, I was joking. I guess I must be a funny person. because <laughs> Then I passed out. I passed out in the middle of the hospital. Um, Good place to pass out. I mean, I, I mean, if you're going to do it, that's a spot, right? The interesting part was I passed out in front of these like automatic sliding doors, but I was blocking the sensor. So there's a lot of doctors on the other side that could see me, but the, the doors wouldn't open. So it was what? in the way. So my mom, my poor mom, she had to try and kind of move me out of the way, which was probably difficult for her. But luckily, she was able to do so. And then eventually, when I came to, I was laying in a hospital bed and they were like, oh, actually, you do have diabetes. Well, when they tested Um, your blood work, you know, when they did the blood work prior to that scenario, did they not have, what was your blood sugar? Did they tell you that? They didn't tell me. So I hadn't gotten the results yet from that. But interestingly enough, as I was laying in the hospital bed, my mom received a phone call from my family doctor. Who was like, hey, you need to get Kayla to the hospital immediately. Her blood work is showing that she has diabetes. And my mom's like, well, we beat you there. We're already there. <laughs> and we already know. So it must have shown that my blood sugars were high or, or something was not within regular range. But I just hadn't gotten those results yet. So just interesting timing how it all came together. So and- then... And you're, yeah. So, yeah, so during the diagnosis, and because I feel like, how many days, how long did you stay in the hospital? So I believe I was only in the hospital for one day. Like, I think I was discharged that night. Like, I don't even think I stayed overnight. They gave us some basic sort of how to get through the evening information. Yeah. And then I kind of went to, to diabetes school, I like to call it. So it basically for their... I want to say a week, maybe two weeks, we came back to the hospital and we were in like a cohort of other families that were newly diagnosed. And then we kind of learned all the ropes. So it was like we learned how to carb count. We learned how to dose insulin and and give injections and any questions we had, we could ask. We could essentially get answered there. But, But you were coming in and out of the hospital. It wasn't that you were you had to stay through that period of time. Yeah. So it was all day. We'd come for the day and then we'd leave at night. So it was a, it was quite the adventure that first night. We were kind of like, we'll see okay. what happens. We knew enough to get by, but you know, it was, it was a little nerve wracking to say well, the least. Well, and that's the, what I was going to touch on is because and we'll get into your career here in a little bit. That's a mega trauma. I mean, that is kind of like a punch in the face. Did you realize the severity of having type one during the diagnosis period? Not so much. Not did your so mom? Much. I think my mom did. Yeah. I think as a parent, and I see this a lot with parents that I work with, it was that feeling of shame. 
My mom totally took this on as I've done something wrong. Yeah. Maybe this is my fault. I could have prevented this, which we know is not the case. But I think my parents certainly knew that more than I did. Yeah. As part of the diabetes school, I was required to see a psychologist and a social worker. Yeah. I mean, that's mandatory. I know it was it was wild. I, it's it's hard to come by now, but yeah, the time that was kind of a mandatory component. It was up to you how many times you wanted to see them, but you had to at least see them once or twice to check mm-hmm. in during that time. So I didn't really take it seriously at that time because, again, as you mentioned, I I didn't really understand the severity, so I kind of just sat there and was like, "This is yeah. boring." But looking back, you know, I appreciate that that support was even available. Absolutely. But yeah, it's hard to know the severity of it when you're wild. Well, and okay, so I'm curious because of, and we're going to get into this a little bit too, being in Canada, what regimen did they put you on immediately? I mean, what kind of insulins or did you, I don't think CGMs were around at that point, but yeah, tell me about what you started with. Yeah, you're right. So CGMs were not a thing at that time. So it was short and long acting insulin. So I was on two different types of insulins. And then, yeah, it was it was carb counting and making sure that we were eating at regular times and <laughs> dosing appropriately. So it was it was very regimented. And that being 12, that's a challenge, too, because you're like, yeah. I want to do what my friends are doing. My friends are yeah. just eating snacks and hanging out and <laughs> Yeah. So it was it was a big change for sure. And I said little things too. So you're in a new school, you now have a new diagnosis. How did you hate I mean, I was so young. I I still have the cards that the my elementary school class wrote to me while I was in the hospital. Did your friends get it? Were you allowed to spend the night out? I mean, that's a big shift. Yeah, absolutely. I think it took a lot of education on my part to yeah. kind of teach them about it because yeah. there wasn't anyone within our grade that yeah. had type 1 diabetes. I was kind of the, the one person in the school. So I really needed to educate people. My teachers were phenomenal and, and completely right. understanding anything I needed. They were they were on board and they were really supportive. My friends also, they're wonderful people. They were like, yeah, whatever you need, we'll do it. And so pretty soon they were helping me with all my stuff. And they would be (laughs) like, oh, I hear something. You better check your blood or (laughs) all sorts of things. So they were on board real quick, too. So I'm I'm very thankful for the support that I had in them. Well, let's move on to you got proper education. And I think that's great. And you got all of the, I'm going to say the layers of having a new diagnosis where how to manage it, how to carb count, what you're dealing with, the emotions and all the things. And it just makes me think about the people that don't get that type of coverage. And some people are handed pamphlets and a backpack. And I'm like, I, what? I can't imagine I that as a parent. But that is mind blowing. <laughs> well, I want to jump into career path. And I there's a couple of questions here. So let's talk about, and the reason why we connected, honestly, was because she had written, I saw her, she put something up on, she, you, put something up on <laughs> LinkedIn, and I, it was about, in fact, let me see if I can read. It was talking about you being a millennial therapist who supports sensitive strivers and is interested in the intersection of diabetes and mental health. And I was like, oh, well, she's focusing on diabetes. I need to know more, not knowing that you had type one. So our initial conversation was kind of a, oh, wow, from my perspective, because I have so many people contact me about, hey, can you 
do you know of any type one focused therapists or counselors? And so Mm -hmm. let's talk about why you shifted into this type of career. Yeah, that's a great place to to chat. I think, you know, it was kind of twofold. So I started my career as a teacher first. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time with adolescents and high school age students, and they really wanted to talk about personal things. I didn't have that background. Mm -hmm. So I could be a supportive listener, but I didn't have those skills. So part of me was pushed into counseling from that perspective. The diabetes side came in. I had gone to one of my appointments. I was speaking to one of my nurse practitioners and she was like, hey, have you ever considered mental health and diabetes work because you live with type one? This is a really helpful avenue to consider. We want people that really understand what it's like to to live with type one and also have that that kind of lived experience, so to speak, in the area of mental health and type one as well. So that's kind of what pushed me towards the diabetes side of of mental health and well-being. And so I I thought this is a an underserved piece of the puzzle. We know this, as you you kind of alluded to in in your response to hearing my story, to get mental health access through the diagnosis process and even later on is is very hard to come by. So that felt like it was a something that felt important to me to do. It was work that I could serve our community with and also felt like, man, this is so needed. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I started the podcast was just having these types of conversations because a lot of people feel like they're alone or that they're not being heard or they're, they're, you know, I blame and shame myself all the time. I'm like, Amber, you're acting crazy. Well, yeah, you just had a rough freaking night with your diabetes and you're functioning at 40% and you're still trying to be the 125% person that you strive to be. 100%. So I, I really appreciate the work that you do. And, but at the same time, I know that talking about diabetes all the time and interviewing people, my life work balance can be very difficult. So tell me about that because I wear the weight of a lot of people, I feel like at times or communities. So how do you deal with that? Because that's a big burden on yourself. Absolutely. You're right. Sometimes, you know, we meet our clients or we meet with with individuals who are struggling with diabetes management or mental health related to diabetes. And it, it is easy to take that on and want to fix. Yeah. <laughs> want to fix it, right? Because you're like, oh, you know, I, I just want to take this this burden away from that person. So I think balance is everything there. And I, I don't necessarily love the word balance because I think it's never 50-50. I yeah. we can never achieve a perfect balance. But the idea of being able to separate ourselves and understand that my experience of diabetes will be different than someone else's and that's okay. And to understand that, you know, although we have the same condition, it's never going to be lived the same way. Absolutely. What tools do you give people that come into your practice when they're diabetes distress? And I want to definitely talk about hypoanxiety here in a second. Yeah. So diabetes distress, we know when we're feeling distress, it can lead to things like burnout, right? This is really common. We're feeling frustrated with diabetes. We're not happy with where our blood sugars are at, or maybe our management has become overwhelming. As you mentioned, diabetes is never ending, right? It's relentless. It's there all the time, 24-7. I think 
part of my work is really normalizing those experiences because it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. This is bound to to be something that we face as individuals living with a chronic condition in our lifetime. Yeah. So really normalizing these experiences to say, you know what, you're not doing anything wrong if you've come to this point. And so providing tools to kind of sit with some of those challenging feelings and thoughts, that's kind of what I do to say, you know, we can feel these things, we can experience these things, and we can also take care of our health at the same time. That is well said. And I'd be curious if your waiting area in your office did not have juice boxes. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Snacks, juice boxes, you better believe it. Starburst. I'm a big Starburst fan. So lots of good stuff for sure. And just out of curiosity with your clientele, what percentage are people living with diabetes? If you could say, I don't know if that was a fair question, but. Yeah, I would say about 70% are living with with type 1. Generally, people come in looking for support with diabetes, Mm -hmm. but we also know that diabetes is not in isolation, right? Mm -hmm. So people come in looking for support around mental health and diabetes, but it also brings in components of life too, relationships, boundaries. We're talking about, you know, work and career goals and things like that also come into play. So it's very interesting how type 1 diabetes also bleeds into other areas of our lives as well. 100%. And yeah, like, like we were just saying, it's always there. It's always tapping on your shoulder or, or your alarms blowing up. Just out of curiosity, now that you've had diabetes for 23 years, what devices, what, what's your regimen? Yes, so I use an Omnipod Dash for my insulin pump and I use the Dexcom for my CGM. And in Canada, is it the G6, G7, the one? What is it? Oh my goodness. I think we're on G6. We're always a little bit behind you, (laughs) which makes me so jealous. I see all this new technology. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to have to wait a few years for that here. Yeah. But here's (laughs) the thing on that. And this is another part I really want to touch on is yes, I'm going to say the United States, that's not a fair. There's UK has advancements that we don't have. But we have to fight insurance. So it's a constant battle. Tell me about what, what does diabetes look like in Canada? I mean, you guys have, and is it per, I'm so ignorant, state, district, county? I mean, what are we talking here? Yeah. So it'd be per province. So yes. we have different. Uh, <laughs> That's so good. I'm sorry. If you tested me on the states, I'd be, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I cannot name all the states, so I forgive you. But yeah, so it's per province here in Canada, and it's regulated by our provincial governments to decide what sort of coverage we have. So uh, here in Alberta, we're quite lucky because we have something called the Insulin Pump Program, (laughs) and it came into effect a few years ago. And what that means is if you qualify, if you live with type 1 diabetes, you can go through what's called the Pump Training Program then you can actually qualify to have your pump and all the supplies associated with your pump covered by the government, which is very nice. So there's a few kind of hoops you got to jump through, but for the most part, most people are covered, which is really nice. That's a huge burden taken off of our shoulders. Absolutely. (laughs) Through that program. Do you get to choose which pump you want? I mean, 
Yeah. So there are Great. some pumps that are approved for the program. So you get to choose from a list. We can't choose outside of that list, but there's a number that we can choose from. And Omnipod is one of those. So I'm very lucky to have that covered yeah, that's a- by, by the government. It's so crazy. And as we're approaching this, this podcast will come out as we go into November, the battles of getting the devices and what you want and the individuality of the treatment. Mm-hmm. It's a, that is a huge burden and that you talk about burnout. I will, I could s- s- talk about burnout for days until you're burned out talking about it. I mean, it's some crazy stuff, but I want to go back to hypo anxiety. Let's define yes. that. And is it even recognized in the medical community? Yeah, that's a great question. So I define hypo anxiety as anxiety about hypoglycemia or, or essentially a fear of low blood sugars. Mm-hmm. It's not an official medical term. However, if we take a look at endocrinology and diabetes-related medicine, it's becoming a more commonly used term, especially here in Canada. So it's, it's one of these things, again, that makes a lot of sense for us individuals living with type 1 diabetes, because of course we're going to feel anxious and worried about low blood sugars when we know that there is the potential of it turning into a medical emergency. So many of us also have experiences that have yeah. been less than ideal with low yeah. blood sugars. Maybe we have had medical emergencies occur. So it makes sense that we're going to see a, a little bit more anxious or on edge around low blood sugars. Oh, that is so well said. And speaking from personal experience, I have been struggling with low blood sugars in the middle of the night with hormones changing and this perimental bullshit. It's it's crazy. And I'm not fearful of going to bed, but making sure I have orange juice by my nightstand or an extra backups. It's it, it can be exhausting. So it's uh it's a real and I wouldn't have put that term together. Reading that just made me think, oh my gosh, this is real. And these feelings are real or validated that I'm not crazy. I mean, absolutely. It's on the day, but no, no, you're absolutely right. And again, that comes back to sort of my work, which is normalizing these feelings and responses. Of course, we're going to feel some type of way about that. I always joke with my clients and who come in wanting to work on hypo anxiety, and I say, you know, it would be, I would be more concerned if you came and sat on my couch and said, I feel nothing about this. Yeah. The fact that we're actually feeling something tells us that, you know, we value our health and our wellness. We value our life and we, and, you know, we're bound to feel nervous and worried about this. This makes perfect sense. Wow. Okay. So you're going into your personal life back into that. Do you, I should I ask that? Do you have children? Perfect. Two not. No, two dogs, which are basically children. <laughs> and I only bring that up because, I mean, people that have had it for a considerable amount of time, it's no longer, I, I would hope they're not saying don't have children or whatever. But that was, you know, the case 40 years ago. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. With that being said, going back to your practice and the burnout and things like that, how do they express to you that they're burnout? And how do you respond to that? Because everybody's burnout is different. Yeah. That's a great question. So some people are able to articulate it through feeling, but often it's through action that we notice burnout more for a lot of the clients. So that might be like stopping insulin, yeah, you know, stopping routine, not checking in on blood sugars. So it's really about behaviors 
a lot of the time. And we'll see they're just pulling back in how they're managing their diabetes. And oftentimes we also see this lovely sort of management come into play when we're also feeling stressed in other areas. So again, as I was saying, diabetes bleeds into all of the areas in our lives. And if we're thinking about this, if we're feeling stressed at work, well, that might mentally take up a lot of space for us, so much so that now diabetes is on the back burner. Oh, yeah. So we're really trying to look at the bigger picture to say, okay, we're, we're feeling burned out with diabetes. What else is contributing to that? Because there's so many other factors that interplay there. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things, and again, one of the reasons why I really enjoy the podcast and interviewing people is that the more we talk about it, and I'm going to say normalizing, because I, I really like that term. And not, I don't like to be whiny or, oh, poor me, because that's just not my mentality. But in professional settings in particular, if you let someone know, then they can better understand your level of performance. I I don't know how else to say that. I've gone into board meetings and had to give a presentation and my blood sugar was like 60. I'm like, oh, dang it. You know, I'm the second agenda item here. And I just, you know, came out and said, listen, my blood sugar is a little bit low. I've treated it. but going to take me a few minutes to get back up and I want to be able to present this information properly. So I think just having the courage, feeling comfortable enough to say, here's where I'm at and everything's going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. And that gives people the opportunity to have empathy, I would like to believe. Absolutely. And you're right. It takes away from an isolation feeling too, where we have to deal with this all on our own. You know, we don't, we don't have to, we can share (laughs) and, 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 you know, it, it does. You're right. It creates empathy. When I was a teacher and I had my CGM, anytime my blood sugar is low, my CGM would, would yeah. alarm. And my students would be like, hey, Miss Chorley, go check your blood. We heard your alarm. <laughs> and then I'd just be standing up there with my juice box while I'm teaching about physics. And the kids were just really understanding. They, they wanted to know more. They were very curious. They, they enjoyed learning about it. And you're right. It does create that empathy. And we you know growing up, you, like you said, you didn't have anybody in your school that had type one throughout the rest of your, I'm going to say under the 12th grade. I don't know what it is in Canada. That's even worse. Um, <laughs> I you nailed it. 12th grade. <laughs> Did you know anybody else growing up? I knew of people growing up. I don't know if I really connected with other people that did have type one at that time. In high school, there was another person that had type one. I do remember that. So I, we had this solidarity where we'd, you know, pass each other in the hallway and be like, hey, <laughs> I see you and you see me. So it was nice to, to have people that we could see that, uh, you know, is visible. We could see yeah. other people had it, which was nice. But I didn't really actually connect much with the diabetes community when I was younger. I, for whatever reason, I, I felt more comfortable not connecting with the community and actually just connecting with the larger community mm-hmm. to say, you know, I belong here too, just because yeah. I have diabetes, I still belong here. So I was always that person that was like, I'm going to do it anyways, even with diabetes, I'm going to do it. So I just, yeah, I pushed myself a lot to just do things. With- exactly how, I mean, I, there was one other girl in growing up that I knew had type one and we were friends, but no, no real, but I didn't want to go to diabetes camp. I had no interest. And it was, again, like you were kind of just saying is, you know, and I did the cheerleading, the palm, I did everything that everybody else was doing. And I really didn't realize until I started the diabetes daily grind, you know, I was different 
And if I would have accepted that a long time ago, going back, and I don't believe in shoulda, coulda, wouldas, but that's another reason why I'm trying to preach this to people. Just own it. Let's just own it. And it won't be so stressful, hopefully. But absolutely. One of the two questions I've asked in the past, and this is just out of curiosity, can we talk about healthcare disparities and lack of access to healthy things? Do you have access to fresh fruits and vegetables within a two-mile walking distance? Yes, I do. Yeah. And not saying that they're cheap, though. That's another <laughs> story. Things are expensive here in Canada in terms of groceries. But yes, yes, I do have access to those things within two miles. And do you feel like you've continued to receive proper education throughout your diabetes life? You know what? I have. I have been incredibly lucky with the endocrinologists I've worked with. Mm -hmm. I have felt incredibly supported. Currently, I see my endocrinologist once a year for mm -hmm. a regular checkup. And then I work with a nurse practitioner and um, a diabetes educator every three months. So it's great. It's incredible coverage. Everyone's on it. They'll send emails and they'll, you know, make those connections for me if there's something that's missing from what I need. Wow. We also have access to dietitian and everything that we could possibly need if, if we're interested in working with someone. So it is really nice that we have that support. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this because, again, going back to you, let's just say you need to see a dietitian. Mm -hmm. And because it's paid for through the government, is it hard to get an appointment? I think you would be waiting probably a month or two okay, to access that service. So if we put in a request, probably about a month or two to access that service. Not as quick as I'm sure some people would like, but yeah. certainly not as, as slow as it could be. Okay. And I think it's one of those things I have friends in Scotland when we talk about needing to get X, Y, and Z. Yeah, depending on if it's a specialist, it could take you a year. And, you know, so it's always one of those things. It's great. Things are covered, but it's, there's always the give and take there. Last question. And I don't know if you can speak to this. You know, there was a lot of coverage about people traveling from the United States into Canada to purchase affordable insulin. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have so many thoughts on that. We've <laughs> talked about this for a long time. Well, first thing that comes to mind is obviously that it's heartbreaking that we've even gotten to a situation where that needs to happen. That yeah. feels really upsetting that that's even a reality that needs mm. to be explored for some people that, you know, sometimes we we monetize things that are life-saving and capitalism reigns again. And it, it drives me nuts. But that's a whole other podcast. I think, in a sense, I feel like we should support each other in the community. And that's my first thought is how do we do this as a community? How do we support each other? You know, because there are people that can access it. So how do I or others help to support those people that can? So that's that's kind of my thoughts on that. But again, first thought, heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think everybody feels, you know, feels that way. And I will say, if you haven't seen the movie, Pay or Die, there's, it's definitely worth watching. I interviewed the, oh, the producers of that. If, and it came out this year at South by Southwest, a big festival here in Texas. And I got to meet all the people that were a part of the, the documentary film. But there is a, a mother and a daughter both have type one. And there's a portion of it where they cross the border to go to Canada. 
uh, just to get medication and it's heartbreaking, literally heartbreaking, but that's, that's another thing. Watch it, pay or die. (laughs) I will do that. You've already given me so many suggestions. I'll check that one out too. (laughs) Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on the show and thank you for all that you're doing for the type one, for the community period. Mental health is such a big deal. And unfortunately, people in the United States, she is not available (laughs) to us, but you know, it, I don't know if there's like a, a database or anything of people in the same space on a global level, but if you come across other people doing similar things in other countries, please let me know because I will definitely put those resources out because this is important. Of course. I know JDRF, which is yes. Canada-based, they have put out a directory oh. of counselors in Canada that actually support diabetes and mental health. So perhaps that's the next step, maybe on on south of the border to to see what that would look like. But I hear you. This is, again, something we need access to. So I will certainly send them your way if I think of anyone. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks for having me. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diabetes and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone.